Hi, writers. This is Susanna Daniel with the Writer's Toolkit podcast, where we use original material from working writers like you to talk about craft and creativity. Here's the second chapter of my novel in progress, Battersea. Stay tuned for our workshops of this chapter and more over the coming weeks. Also, we'll be answering some of your questions each episode, so please leave your question in a voicemail at 608-455-6288, and maybe you your voice will be featured on an upcoming episode. Chapter 2. It was June. All the windows opened to screens. Kate carried a basket of laundry to the base of the stairs, intending to yell for the boys to please come get their clothes, and was surprised to find the twins from across the street standing on her stoop. The one with the buzz cut, Mickey, pressed a cheek to the screen, which gave the little girl a look of a burglar wearing a stocking mask. Come on, Kate said, and in the girls stomped, dropping their flip-flops in the foyer. Is he? Kate called. The girls found him beneath the living room sofa. It took a minute for him to shimmy out, clutching a plastic superhero. Louise, the twin with the asymmetrical hair, shaved on one side and a wavy bob on the other, the happy result of a run-in with a nest of burrs, thrust a palm toward Izzy and he peered down solemnly. A worm? He had trouble with his R sounds. It came out like woim. A marine worm, said Mickey. Her clipped, sibilant, seven-year-old voice sounded almost British. From the gutter, my dad looked it up. Kate wanted to glimpse the creature, but then Freddie burst into the room through the swinging kitchen door. Mama, he said, Mama. She knew what was coming. I can't find my flashlight, said Freddie. Where did you see it last? He pulled up a couch cushion and threw it to the ground. You said you'd find it. She had said this. Last night, after two glasses of wine, her eyes on her laptop screen. What's marine, said Izzy. Like the ocean, said Mickey. Freddie tossed another couch cushion. Mama! Take a breath, she said. She looked around the living room, the mantle over the fireplace, the game table in the corner where her laptop sat open but dark the sofa table, the antique hutch full of her mother's china, the dusty framed photos perched here and there. Check your room, she said. I did. Check the treehouse. I did. I'm not going without it, Freddie said. Tell them I'm not coming. On Thursday nights, Freddie's mixed-age birding group met to hunt herons and egrets and ibises. He hadn't missed an outing since Christmas. In the past year, his 11th, he'd become verbally limber possessive of his things, a touch vain and extremely expressive. Every day she found herself awestruck or flummoxed by him. Even now, as he stared her down, flexing the fledgling muscles of his temper, she thought, once you were a baby kicking in the tub, once you were a toddler with his shoes on the wrong feet, what had ensued was not so much growth as metamorphosis. What ocean, said Izzy to the twins. He often called to them his best friend, singular. What do you mean, said Louise. The Pacific one or the Atlanta one, said Izzy. No one corrected him. Freddie was too busy fuming. You have five minutes, Kate said to Freddie. 
Keep looking. He threw up his hands. Will you help me? Check your room again. Ugh, he took the stairs two at a time. This one, said one of the twins to Izzy. Our ocean. Atlanta, said Izzy, and all three kids, they were precisely the same height, nodded. They had the solemn camaraderie of a second-grade think tank. Kate set down the laundry and glanced at her laptop. Had it been an hour? Theirs was the oldest home in a five-mile radius, once the site of 100-acre pineapple farm. Three upstairs bedrooms, small and slumped, a sleeping porch off the master, and a miniature attic, Izzy's room. The lot was roomy and the pool was long and narrow. She'd bought the house before Roger, before the kids, with money inherited from her mother. There had been enough to repoint the chimney and replace the windows and paint the siding, not enough to install central air. In the past year, developers had started to call. Every first Sunday, a trolley-shaped bus circled this cul-de-sac, and tourists took pictures of the farmhouse, her farmhouse, and the giant English oak and the low coral wall that wrapped the property on three sides. A relic from old Florida, said the tour guide into his mic. Imagine living here without air conditioning. The tourists fanned themselves in horror. Now, Kate was sweating, mostly on her upper lip and between her thighs and beneath her old sundress. A phone rang. Roger had instituted a no-phones-in-the-house rule, and now their little machines lived in an airtight red plastic box on the foyer table, next to a bowl for keys and unguessable bolts and wishful coupons. He'd banned laptops from the bedroom, too. She used to watch sitcoms in bed while he showered, tweezing her chin hairs and untangling the wires of her brain. The red box was intended for hunters and outdoorsy types, for keeping valuables safe from water and bears, a keepsake from bachelorhood. It was a way, Kate figure, figured, of controlling things in the house without having to be actively involved. She hadn't bothered to make a fuss. She opened the box. The calls were from Margot Mendez, the twins' mother, who lived almost directly across the street. Are they there? I'd come check, but I'm lazy, said Margot. They're here. The twins had a habit of roaming the cul-de-sac, aiming for Izzy or Roger's dogs. Twice, Kate had found them swimming in her pool with no one home. There were only three houses on the block, and the pool was oddly placed, close to the street and directly beside a break in the coral wall and a gate that didn't latch. Kate's neighbors treated her pool like community property. She'd worried about getting sued if anything happened, then decided not to worry about it. One more day, said Margot. Are you ready? No, I'm not, said Kate. You? I think so, but I tend to be wrong about these things, said Margot. Margot taught dance at a private high school in North Miami, so like Kate's, her work dropped off sharply in the summer. Any other year, Kate would have posted a chore chart and a daily schedule on the fridge. Being ready for summer meant straightening the boys' rooms and getting the swimming pool checked and booking a trip. The Bahamas were all but washed away, weren't they? What about Sanibel? Were there any shells left? Send them back if you can, said Margot. Bedtime and all that. Sure thing, said Kate. She locked away the phone and picked up the laundry. Freddie appeared at the top of the stairs. You said you'd put them in my bag, he shouted down at her. She fought an urge to head right out the front door. Freddie mistook her silence for weakness and he plunged. 
You had one thing to do, he said, one thing, and you blew it. The basket hit the floor. For a second, Freddie wore a look of surprise and then worry. She was human. She could blow her lid. But then she started to laugh. She held her stomach and rocked on her heels. Oh, my God, she gasped. Oh, my God, I can't believe that you just said that. One thing. <laughs> oh, my God. She wiped tears. She composed herself. That's bold. I love you, kiddo. She climbed the stairs. He deflated. Sorry, he said. She handed him the basket. Put these away. I'll find it. They're coming right now. The birds will wait, she said. The flashlight was on his bed under an old yellow raincoat of hers that he'd been taking to wearing, that he'd taken to wearing. It had been raining so frequently for so long she could almost ignore the rain entirely, like when you're swimming in a sun shower. Except this rain had been torrential, unrelenting, whipping the surface of the pool and rattling the screens. Now he stowed the flashlight in a deep front pocket and headed downstairs, shouting amnesiatically, Thanks. Bye. As if nothing had happened. Barb Larson, stay-at-home mother of four, pulled up in her minivan. Kate had gone with the group the first time, but her attempts to engage the others in conversation had resulted in hushing from Freddie. He'd point and she'd look through the binoculars and ooh and ah, as if she'd also spotted the burrowing owl or indigo bunting, all while longing for headphones and an audiobook. Now he went alone and came home tired and wearing a peaceful look, as if he'd been meditating, which maybe he had. By the time she got back to her laptop, two hours would have passed. Izzy, she called down the stairs. The, the twins need to go home. Bedtime. There was always a lot of shouting in her house. Roger never shouted, but sometimes after Kate did, she caught him frowning, as if bearing the burden of her noise. To which she wanted to say, well, then you handle it. She found Izzy and the twins in the small sunroom sitting in a circle. We looked it up, said Izzy. It's a parchment tube worm. Parchment, he said. Let's go, girls, said Kate. Take your worm. At the door, they shuffled into their flip-flops. This summer, we have to make our own lunch, said Mickey to Kate. And put away our laundry, said Louise. Kate glanced over their heads into the darkening night. It was drizzling, which these days counted as pretty great weather. Across the street, Margot was dancing across the slab of their unfinished addition, unfinished for almost a year now, her body smeared by a plastic tarp, tarp that substituted for a wall. That seems like a good idea, said Kate. It could be a summer of projects and productivity. She'd clean out the closets and reorganize the pantry. She'd swim laps every day, maybe twice a day. Wait, where did you guys look up the information about the worm? Computer, said Mickey. Laptop, corrected Louise. Please don't use my laptop without asking, said Kate. But she wasn't too worried about the eyes of seven-year-olds. Freddie's eyes, maybe. Roger's. Sorry, said Izzy. Sorry, said the girls. She watched them cross the street and go into their house. To Izzy, she said, bedtime, and he scurried up the stairs. It was the crest of a wave, this time between tasks. A downslide, part glass and part foam, a whipped-up tranquility. The kids had left the laptop open to a photograph of a parchment tube worm separated from its tube, 
which was not, according to a blurb she scanned before closing the page, the worm's exoskeleton, but rather a carcass composed of sediment inside inside which the many-legged worm lived. She logged into her email. There was no new message. Roger came in then through the back door, and with him came the odor of oil pastels and turpentine. She shut the laptop. Working late? Roger had converted the freestanding garage into a studio, complete with a half bath and a dark room that Freddie had recently started to use. He almost always worked late. Sometimes he missed dinner. Sometimes he scarfed it down before dropping his plate in the sink and heading out again. Deadline, he said. She couldn't read his expression. Had she been able to before he grew the beard, before the lines around his eyes deepened, back when they were falling in love? I'm headed up, she said. Do you want to tell them good night? In a minute. She left her laptop reluctantly, feeling her body unzip from her brain, leaving behind a ghost self who would do everything she wished she could do. Refresh, refresh. Reread this morning's emails, yesterday's, last week's. Izzy was sitting on the floor in front of his bookshelves, sorting his books into stacks. By alphabet or by subject, she, he said. I can't decide. Tomorrow, said Kate. Hair and teeth. Now. He scrambled out of the room. The attic was narrow, and in addition to the bunk bed with its top mattress claustrophobically close to the ceiling, there was a desk, an overburdened bookshelf, and a big dresser. On the floor was an oval rug that had been in her own childhood bedroom. The high dormer offered a view of the English oak and the treehouse. It was a magical room, straight out of a fairy tale. Izzy's bunk called to her and she lay down. Unlike Freddie, who spent five minutes every morning smoothing his long blonde hair, Izzy's routine was speedy. In a minute, his flat feet were smacking up the attic stairs. Will you read the one about the tarantula, he said. Last time you had a bad dream. No, I didn't. I was going to have a bad dream, so I didn't go to sleep. Right, that's what I meant. Freddie told me we don't have tarantulas in Florida. Only in pet shops. Do they escape? No. What about scorpions? I don't think so. She lived in Miami all of her life and had never seen one, but she suspected they were around. They can't climb stairs anyway, she said. What about pythons? We have those, but not in the house. We have hurricanes and alligators, no tarantulas. I was thinking, he said, climbing heavily over her and hooking a leg over her waist. She turned on the bedside light and opened the book. Tarantulas versus scorpions. Who will win? I don't think Superman is my favorite DC superhero anymore, said Izzy. There was melancholy in his voice. Why not? He's too overpowered. This was a word Freddie had used. Only Izzy truly cared about superheroes, their backstories, their enemies, enemies, he'd said until Freddie corrected him, and special abilities and quests. For Freddie, it was just talk. Maybe, she said, but he's so kind. Izzy brought his face to her cheek. He was an especially physical child. Freddie had started to give her his cheek when she came in to kiss him, and when Roger kissed her, their lips barely made contact. In a day, the most affection she received was from Izzy. Now, he launched full bore into a love fest. I love you so much, Mama. I love you so much, Iz. I'm so happy you're my mama. 
Me too. I'm the luckiest. This went on for a while. He touched her face with his damp fingertips. She tried not to cut it short. She was grateful she'd changed her mind about having a second child for a few reasons, and one was how she could recognize the phases as they happened. Izzy was noisy, emotional, quick to anger, even to hit, especially his brother. But even as she one-two-threed and issued timeouts, she thanked the universe for this child who almost wasn't. Sometimes she longed for a third. It was late, sure, but only by a shade. By the time the tarantula and scorpion were halfway through their showdown, Izzy's breath was even and his cheeks were clammy. Freddie wouldn't be home for an hour. She could doze here entwined with his small, warm body, but Izzy wasn't having it. Go away now, Mama, he whispered in his semi-sleep. He was made of wants and want-nots. It didn't bother her. Before having children, she could have imagined how much she would love them, but she'd had no idea how much she would respect them. Downstairs, she poured herself a jelly jar of white wine. Beyond the screens, there was the trilling and squeaking. There was trilling and squeaking and a low hush from the swimming pool. She closed her eyes. A garage door opened. A car door closed. A bufo toad growled. The dogs in the sunroom sighed and rattled their tags. Nighttime was the thing was when the whole thing consumed her. She couldn't concentrate. She couldn't read. She became snappish and trembly, got physical with the dishwasher, was short with Roger and wheedled the boys or shooed the dogs out the kitchen door. A few nights ago, the collie, Jillian, slipped her collar and breached the electric fence. Kate and Roger had searched for an hour before Gilly emerged from a hedge and bound into their legs. Now, something across the street caught Kate's eye. It was her neighbor, Barton Callahan, one year single and at all times jangly with nerves, running toward the cul-de-sac where he paused. Then he took off into the pine woods. There was no new email. It had been three hours and eight minutes. It was over for the day. Maybe it was over for good. She took her wine upstairs. She went out to the sleeping porch and lay on the musty chaise. Smoky moonlight dusted the surface of the swimming pool. Roger found her there half an hour later. He stood on the bedroom side of the screen door. What are you doing? Ruminating, said Kate. Okay. You didn't say goodnight, said Kate. I was working. Honey. What? She stood up shakily. Let's try to talk to each other more. Okay. Summer's coming. I'm going to need your help with the kids. Okay. But my work doesn't stop. I've told you. I know. I just want to feel like we're a team. Okay. Do you want to feel like we're a team? Sure, he said, but we talk plenty. It was true. They did talk. What time she'd be home, whether Freddie could use Roger's old Nikon, what to eat for dinner, what to do about the side door, which had been sticking. Whether to trim the oak, whether to fight the property assessment, whether to push the school on Izzy's speech problems, whether Freddie was ready for advanced math, when to retile the swimming pool, about Roger's latest insufferable client, about a sophomore who Kate counseled at the university who called her a dried-up whore, about how long it had been since they'd had sex. She knew precisely, he knew generally. The boys, the house, the money, the dogs. These talks were not only brief, they were mostly one-sided and almost entirely transactional. 
She had used this word once to describe their marriage, since it seemed to her that all they did as a twosome was make decisions and convey logistics. But this led to an argument about her word choice, which led to her apologizing for her word choice, and that was that. Her own parents, not a great match in many ways, had talked all the time. In the kitchen, the bedroom, the car. The stream of their talk composed the soundtrack of her childhood. What did her children hear from the other side of the bedroom door? Silence. Let's make more of an effort, both of us, she said. Okay, he said. Maybe he was smiling slightly. Maybe he was lightly amused or annoyed. It was hard to tell behind the beard. He was a handsome man. She'd always thought so. There was a time when he'd thought highly of her, too. Looks and personality and the whole shebang. So much of life was in past tense. Was this what it meant to be 42 years old? Fewer desires, but so much harder to satisfy. Do you want a kiss? She said. Sure. She opened the screen. If his lips swelled to meet hers, she didn't detect it. Did other wives feel this, what was the word, ridiculous? Was he having an affair? Was the distance or the disinterest because she'd aged? Because she'd gained a few pounds? Every morning she looked in the mirror and thought, goodness, I'm cute. She was the only one who told herself as much in years. I'm taking the dog, said Roger. This was his routine, several miles in the morning before heading into the garage, several miles before bed. Patsy, the chihuahua, had the stamina only for one of those times, but the big dogs, Jillian and Miles, Roger named his dogs after favorite musicians, took as much exercise as he'd give them. The dogs were an issue. A marital gauntlet, Kate had joked darkly to friends. Roger had acquired two during Kate's first pregnancy and one during her second, both times ignoring her concerns that the timing was not ideal. Not only were the dogs expensive, both in predictable and unpredictable ways, but they required a lot of time and energy. But it's my time and my energy, said Roger more than once, and Kate bit her tongue. Yes, it was his time. Time he could have spent reading to the kids or putting them to bed or helping Izzy with his bath or helping Freddie with his homework or making meals or cleaning up meals or finding all the misplaced things or reminding the boys to clean up their Legos and baseball gear or changing the sheets on all the beds or shopping for groceries or engaging in conversation. They make me happy, he'd said. And that was the last word. Kate liked the dog. She did. She liked when she sat down in the morning before school and work and Jillian, the largest, heaved up onto the sofa and sprawled across her legs. She liked when Patsy spun in a happy circle before diving into her food. And she liked when the half-deaf one, Miles, napped in the middle of the busiest room of the house. She didn't care much when they ate the laces from Freddie's new shoes or knocked a dish from the table or spilled a potted plant, but she felt something. Jealousy? when Roger rubbed their haunches and murmured to them. She followed him downstairs. The dogs came out of the sunroom with their tails up, bowing and nudging toward their leashes. He strapped a blinking headlight to his headlamp to his forehead and made his way out the door, the dogs weaving around him. There was no new message. She sat on the stoop, and after a minute, Barb's van turned into the driveway. Freddy emerged from the sliding door, offering a thanks over his shoulder. His eyes flashed. We tracked a flock of spoonbills, and I caught an 
Anhinga drying its wings, he said to Kate. We saw parrots, but I didn't get them on tape. I recorded a manatee underwater, though. It sounded like it had a stuffy nose. Successful mission, said Kate. She took his backpack and hung it on the foyer rack. Bedtime. They were halfway through 20,000 leagues under the sea. She settled into a rocking chair at the foot of his bed as he puttered. One page, she said. It's late. Four, he said. Two, she said. Fine. He lay down on top of the covers. She read the scene in which Nero introduces himself to the three guests who boarded his submarine. They're lucky to be alive, he tells them. He could have submerged while they were standing. He could have submerged while they were still standing on the hull of his ship. I am not what you call a civilized being. I have broken with society for reasons I alone have the right to appreciate. So I do not obey its rules, and I ask you never to invoke them in my presence again. As she closed the book and kissed Freddie's warm forehead, she imagined the huddled threesome sinking into the dark sea. Outside Freddie's room, she took deep breaths. Good night, she said quietly to the house. There are houses that remind you of magazine spreads, and houses that remind you of the home where you spent your childhood, and houses that remind you of people. Kate's house had shoulders that straightened in the noon light and slumped at dusks at dusk, shutters like eyebrows that furrowed in bad weather, haunches that squatted into the earth. The developers, they could call forever. She went downstairs and turned off all the lights. No message. Too late. Next was a cool shower and bed. Low tide. But then she heard her name. Kate. A man stood on the stoop, blood on his forehead and dirt on his shorts. Barton? She rushed to open the screen door. What happened? I fell into a hole, he said. She looked beyond him into the misty night. What hole? Barton wiped a bloody palm across the front of his shirt. His eyes were wild. I'll show you, he said. Hi, writers. That was chapter two from my work in progress, Battersea. As you can tell, there are going to be two main characters, Barton and Kate. With, um, I made the choice to use a close third person for each of them. And so far, there's been one chapter from Barton and one chapter from Kate, but it's not going to continue in an A, B, A, B, A, B structure. There are going to be a couple from Barton here, a couple from Kate there. Some will be long, some will be short. I always like to say that um, readers kind of enjoy when you mix it up. We love short chapters. We love long chapters. We love to get two or three chapters from one point of view and then a quick one from the other point of view and then go right back. Um, we like to be kind of surprised. So um, a lot of narratives will do an A, B, A, B, A, B, but it doesn't necessarily work when a narrative is chronological or when just structurally you have more to convey from um, a like a story beat in one character's arc and less at that time from another. Okay, we can talk more about um, dueling points of view and the uh, pros and cons of close third and versus 
first and all of that when we start talking about the, the novel. Stay tuned for chapter three. Thanks, everybody.